Welcome to the Health Ignited Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Nick and Sonia Jensen. We are partners, parents, business partners, doctors, yoga teachers, and retreat leaders. We promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible. Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones, and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation, and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. Hey, what's up, guys? Dr. Nick Jensen here, back with you again for another episode of Health Ignited. And I'm here again as a solo sode without my amazing wife, who's busy writing her book. She's in the middle of uh, chapter three or four right now, and she's got a deadline of February. So she's uh, actively working on that while I'm taking care of the podcast for the time being. So if you're new to this channel, thank you so much for showing up. The reason we're here is to help educate you on your hormonal health journey and what that means for your vitality, for your brain health, from biohacking to relationships and and how you can show up better in the world and what we find is when we really dive deep into our hormonal health it really gives us access or lens through which to look at our overall health so we can make better decisions for ourselves and feel like a champ on a more regular basis so if this is content you're enjoying please uh click subscribe and stay tuned for all the upcoming updates for latest podcasts uh, that have to do with you specifically so you might as well show up and, and spend time with us so in this uh, conversation that we've been having for the last uh, few weeks and going to continue on to the rest of the month, just diving deep into DHEA. And what is DHEA? Well, we we dove into that in great detail on the last podcast. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, go and do so because it's important to understand what this molecule is all about. But if you want to know the long name, it's a big one. It's a mouthful. It's dehydroepiandrosterone. And it's a precursor to testosterone and estrogen and, and a lot of uh, our other downstream hormones that have profound effects on our body. And as I said last time, we broke down the, the five M's, which is mind, mood, memory, metabolism, and your immune system. We kind of talked a little bit about what how that shows up. But in this particular podcast, we're going to dive into some key words that, that really are, are triggering for people, uh, probably for the better. Um, but we want to know how these these hormones, DHA specifically, plays a role in fasting. And then we're going to dive into muscle building and, and anabolic health. And then basically how we work with this in practice and what that means from a holistic point of view. So let's dive into DHEA and fasting into a little bit more detail uh, because it's such a, a common practice now. You know, I'll just give you a little story. When when I first started talking about fasting in, in my practice, it actually it actually first started happening after um, me experiencing fasting or fasting lifestyle for about four or five years. And I really didn't tell any patients about it. This was probably about 12 years ago. And uh, I was worried that patients would think was were going to think that I was crazy. Uh, just the, the daily practice of uh, intermittent fasting and seasonal uh, extended fasts. And so I was a little nervous about, uh, uh, re you know, recommending that for people or advising people on it. Uh, but eventually I dove deeper into the science and application and I found some amazing mentors uh, to help uh, help me put this into practice in, in a practical doctor-patient practice setting as opposed to just, hey, I'm going to try this out for a bit and I think you should do it too. Uh, so I wanted to come from a science background. And so once I got the training and applied some of the, the, the theory and protocols, I was able to develop my, my own practice more deeply. 
So uh, that's a little bit of my journey. So I've been doing fasting for a very long time now, and we take groups through uh, these extended fasts, and we call it the metabolic upgrade. And we've got a program actually online that people can do it, a DIY version. And then we also meet virtually a few times a year to walk people through in a group setting. So if you do want to know more information about how to do this uh, more practically, safely with the science, uh, check out our uh, webpage, drsjensen.com. You can find the program called the Metabolic Upgrade there for the DIY version. Uh, because I think it is a, it's an important tool that we all could uh, implement into our daily life uh, to the degree that will benefit us. And that's one of the, you know, real one, really one of the pieces I want to talk to you guys about today, because um, I think it's easy to just say everybody should fast. And um, at some point in my journey, I definitely thought that. Uh, but now that I've had more time, you know, helping patients through this journey, my own practice, I can recognize where we can become almost too attached to it and almost too obsessed about it. So I want to talk about that in relation to DHEA. So let's just talk about it as a stress first. Fasting is a stress on the body. It's, you're going for a period of time without food and that's going to have uh, to you individually. We don't know all the consequences of that, uh, but there's something called too much stress and then there's you stress, which is normal stress. And then I would say there's not there's in cases where there's not enough stress or or more appropriately said, maybe not the right type of stress, right? So too much stress is pretty obvious. That's that's someone who's on the go constantly. There's no downtime. They're constantly in their head. They haven't maybe uh, developed a practice that allows you to, to get in touch with your consciousness or that subconscious aspect of yourself, the, the hidden programs, you know, so there's that person who's just so on the go feeling overwhelmed, uh, not getting stuff done, probably not sleeping well at night, going to bed too late, waking up late, using stimulants to get going in the morning, wine to wind down or whatever that alcohol of choice might be to just turn off, you know, the system upstairs. And uh, many of us have maybe found ourselves there. Maybe many of us can relate to that version. Um, and, and maybe they're pushing it hard in the gym constantly, you know, doing the one type of exercise over and over and over again maybe getting stuck with the physical results or the health results and uh, and then have a huge plate, right? Maybe you got kids and maybe you got a, a very timing expensive job and, you know, and maybe your weekends are taken up with, with uh, extra activities as a parent or, or for work or, or your weekend warrior and just constantly the gas pedal is constantly down. Uh, some version of that would definitely be too much stress. And then there's you stress. This is like conscious applied stress on the body that, that can elicit a proper hormonal response instead of an extended or chronic cortisol or high cortisol response, which we know that version of you, if you've got the gas pedal down all the time, you're pushing too heavy with a heavy foot on that cortisol, which is also going to deplete your DHEA. So let's talk about that eustress. This is a consciously applied intermittent fasting schedule where you're you know, listening to your body, you're putting the right food in when it's time to eat, you're closing the kitchen at the appropriate time. Um, in our practice, when we see that people are doing this consciously with a good type of stress, they typically respond well and their, their adrenal system can handle that load. But I think for a lot of people, when they just throw fasting into a really crazy, uh, lifestyle reality without any sort of downtime or internal, you know, introspection where they're working on their breath work or meditation practice or something to actually, you know, hit the off switch, or the turn down switch without the the, the use of alcohol, um, you know, these type of people can get quite stuck, right? And I think fasting in these types of individuals can actually lead to more 
more problems than than a good of a good form of stress. And then the not enough stress, maybe that's the the sedentary individual, the person who's just sitting on the couch, uh, just there's really not a lot of physical activity maybe in the work. There's not a lot of physical activity outside of work. There's a very sedentary. And this is also typically the type of behavior that's conducive to insulin resistance. So there might be higher food intake or the overfed state uh, situation where there's not enough applied stress. And it turns out that those people could do really well with, with some conscious stress added to them in the form of fasting. So I just wanted to sort of lay that out there, sort of initial framework that there can be too much stress on the body, there can be not enough stress, and then there can be sort of the Goldilocks effects, uh, effect, which is just the right amount at the right time applied with the right force, right? We have to know ourselves individually. So um, different types of fasts mean different things. So I don't really think of intermittent fasting necessarily or that that daily compressed meal window as true fasting. Um, listening to Dr. Jason Fung or some of the different experts, um, uh, Walter Longo or some of these different, you know, fasting experts uh, that have shared some of the research on fasting. Fasting is a, an engaging hormonal process that takes a few days to unfold, which can be done with, you know, uh, like the partial fast, like Dr. Walter Longo speaks to, or the, like the water fast that, that Dr. Jason Fung might speak to. Um, and this is where you're putting a more, um, tenuous or longer uh, stretch of time applied to the body for a more relevant specific outcome to initiate a true fasted state, which would be a huge fluctuation in hormones. Uh, and initially this fasting for in the first 24 to 48 hours, you might get increased uh, glucose spikes, increased cortisol. Um, you're going to mobilize uh, more glucose into the body to help you just sort of overcome this uh, lack of food which all these hormones are playing a role in. And then eventually, you know, as you extend that, you start getting rises in epinephrine and adrenaline and things like that. And then growth hormone eventually kicks in. And so this podcast isn't necessarily going to dive into all the different stages of fasting, but it's important to lay out that what happens in a day is very different than what happens in five days. Just like if you were to just do intermittent fasting and never do an extended fast, there's, that's going to be a different stress load on the body. And so that's going to show up differently as a different type of stress for your adrenal system. So, and for most people, you know, as long as the gas pedal is not constantly down, doing a form of intermittent fasting on a very regular basis seems to work just fine. And I'm speaking more from our clinical expertise as opposed to all the different studies on it. But here's the interesting thing on DHA and fasting is that it's just not clear. I mean, th there's a lot of variables. People are, all, all are operate a little bit differently. We have different BMIs, different life circumstances, different levels of activity, different levels of toxicity, different levels of emotional toxicity. There's a lot of different things going on for different people. But there was one study on zebra finch, on the zebra finches, uh, which don't necessarily correlate to the human physiology, but it, they were looking at aggression levels um, in these zebra finches when they were going for a relatively short period of time, but to them fasting. And what actually happened in, in that, that period of time without food is their aggression levels came up. And so they correlated that back to DHEA, um, which, which, may, which may translate to humans. But again, looking at zebra finches to, to address our physiology obviously isn't uh, the best of, of sources. So, uh, but the, there's not a lot of conclusive data to what happens to DHEA, whether it goes up or down, uh, in, in human populations in, uh, PCOS cases also women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. It turns out that doing some version of intermittent fasting can have a, a can have a decreasing effect on DHEA. 
And I would say the most likely scenario for impact on PCOS is probably to more to do with insulin regulation, because as you take time away from food, you, you will eventually improve insulin sensitivity, but you also bring insulin levels down. And so in these people with PCOS, they tend to be more prone to weight gain. Um, and so they have more, they're more potentially insulin resistant. And so I think that there's these indirect effects of these excess androgens starting to decline because you're improving the sensitivity of insulin. And I think that's like one of the most important things I think that we can learn about DHEA in, in regards to fasting is that depending on our stress load, we, we might have different responses. But more importantly, what are all the permutations of having a better of having better insulin sensitivity. And I think that's the the most important way to look at this is that if we're having an impact on insulin or lowering insulin resistance, improving the sensitivity of our cells to the hormone insulin, then we're probably going to have a better adrenal reserve. We're going to, our adrenal system's not going to be getting its butt kicked every 10 minutes because the blood sugar is all over the place. We're going to have a more sustained, steady response for these levels. And so I think... Um, you know, really addressing adrenal health and addressing, um, you know, the time that we're spending in a fasted state and addressing us as an individual will give us different data. But from what I've seen is it's not super clear whether or not someone's going to increase their DHEA uh, in response to fasting, whether short term or long term. And I, from every study I've looked at, they keep saying, uh, that not enough data is is there to tell us uh, definitively what actually happens to DHA when fasting. But like I said, I think it just goes back to the individual. And if we're we're constantly that gas pedal down, too much stress individual, um, you may not have a, a beneficial effect of DHA on fasting. Um, and I say all this because at the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see clinically, because often when people are doing the right things, uh, plural, they tend to have a better response in how the DHA is behaving. So you have to stay tuned for the rest of those details. Uh, and then I want to share a little bit about a population of people uh, that that maybe are afraid of fasting. And I'll talk specifically about a friend of mine, a, a trainer who I got to do a, an extended fast. He ended up, I recommended a five-day fast just to try it out. He was healthy, uh, very lean, very, very bulked but lean uh, individual obviously took really good care of himself in the gym, physically very strong. And uh, there was tremendous amount of fear there about considering to do an extended fast. And I said, listen, it's just, you know, five days of your life, whatever you were doing before you can get back into. And my challenge to you is that, you know, because you're, you've got such good muscle build and you're worried about losing muscle in this fast, why don't you just keep exercising every day? You might not be able to do the full, you know, full intensity workout that you're used to, but I encourage you to stay active and keep lifting weights during your experience. You might just find that your endurance isn't quite as, you know, strong. Your energy may be a little bit waning, uh, especially in the first couple of days. Uh, but let's just make that one criteria that you keep active uh, during your fast. And so we measured his his body composition before entering the fast and literally every day of the fast. And uh, what we saw, maybe maybe to your surprise or maybe not, is that his fat mass went down, which makes sense. He got, got into ketosis. He started burning up some of that fat, but his muscle mass actually increased. He obviously looked more chiseled than he did when he started, but his muscle mass was increasing because the stimulus for muscle growth was still there despite not having the protein, which is you know, very scary for people who um, are trying to maintain size and not lose weight and whatnot. And it was a tremendous insight for this individual 
uh, who actually ended up pausing or stopping the the fast of four days, not because he couldn't make it to the fifth day, but because he had a big dinner event coming the next night. And he didn't, he wanted to try to break the fast according to how we typically recommend and not move into this big meal and, you know, hurt his GI tract <laughs> with a, with an onslaught of food. So we did end, end the fast a little bit earlier, but it was very insightful for him to see that he actually maintained and actually built muscle mass, lost fat, fat mass, and and actually did a pretty good job of maintaining his energy and wasn't too struggled. Now, we always we have a specific way in which we support people during fasting with certain supplements and things like that to help to prevent catabolism or breakdown. And like I said, you can check out those details in more detail if you'd like on the DIY version of the metabolic upgrade. Um, or join us on one of our upcoming group sessions. So, um, because it's it's an important tool, right? It doesn't it doesn't fix everything, but I tell you what, if it's not in the tool belt, it probably you know you could definitely do uh, some research to find out whether or not it's going to work for you. But I think you know my hope here in this d- initial discussion around fasting and DHA is really where I'm at on this whole adrenal health spectrum, you know, and look back to maybe some of the previous podcasts to really help to outline that the adrenal health component, if you're not totally clear, because I think really understanding that can give you more insight in how, how maybe you did on a fast in the past and why, why that maybe hurt you or hindered you or, or troubled you or, or maybe why you did really well, because you had the right amount of uh, stress with the right force, the right time. You know, so those kind of things are really important, I think, when addressing uh, DHEA levels in fasting. So basically, we don't know enough, right? When have you heard that before? But I think it's important, right? I think it's important to say that this definitively does this or not. Um, I think we can't say that unless there's a tremendous amount of confidence. And like I said, I'm going to give you my clinical clinical experience at the end. So you can make, make use of that information any way you see fit. But I think... Um, and some of this information we just we just don't yet know, right? Because here here's a just one last thing I guess I should say on this is that you know there's a ton of information or uh, articles written on like testosterone is boosted when fasting, and one would think that if testosterone is getting boosted, DHA probably is too. DHA being the precursor to testosterone, and so you know, and that's not the scope of this discussion, like I said, but, you know, I tell us to patients too. And I, and I would say that that very well could have been the case for this trainer who was still stimulating uh, testosterone through exercise, was still stimulating muscle growth, yet not necessarily having access to the the daily protein intake. Uh, but as we know from autophagy, breaking down cellular material, he's probably recycling a lot of the proteins that were getting broken down because they were in damaged tissue that was no longer serving him. And then he got to repackage those proteins and put them in, into areas that uh, that are needing that stimulus or needing that repair, right? So there is a ton of information out there, and or we're being told that there's all sorts of reasons too fast to build testosterone. And and again, even with that information, I'd say it's so individual. You can't say that everybody's going to get, you know, whatever it is it says, 180 percent to 1500 uh, percent improvement in testosterone with fasting. Uh, maybe you will, maybe you won't right? Like we're all individuals. So put that one to rest for a bit. Now let's talk about muscle mass because that's important too, right? Whether we're just talking about, um, you know, the dad, the dad bod and trying to maintain your physique as you age so that you age more gracefully, you can still play soccer, football, hockey, whatever with your boys or your your girls, with your kids, you know, you want to, you want to stay strong for as long as you can, right? 
and I'm not talking about like the the dad bod that that maybe got all the attention with like the big beer belly and you know that kind of dad bod. I'm talking about being a strong example of what your kids can grow into. And I think I know well. I know I want that for myself. Uh, I want that for my kids now and for when they get older. But I want to be an example of what it means to stay healthy for as long as possible. So I want to reframe the dad bod and how do we optimize our hormones to meet the demands of the physical body so we don't buy into this idea that, oh, we're getting older so we can just, you know, fit into that big bellied, you know, flabby arms, loose gut, you know, saggy pants kind of version of ourselves. Uh, We can actually, you know, and this has nothing to do or maybe a little bit to do with vanity, but really more a, a call to action of like, you know, what how do you see yourself internally how do you see yourself externally how do you how do you want to show up for your kids your wife your family your community you know do you really want to be uh, a shining example of what's possible or are we just going to you know go with the status quo and just become complacent with our health and i think that uh you know addressing this from that through a lens of dha and muscle building is important so what do we know about this um you know, one could supplement it in if you're in the U.S. Here in Canada, it has to be prescribed to you. It would make sense to look at or get an assessment of what your DHA level is at. So that, you know, blood, urine, or saliva. Basically, for us, we always check blood when we're when we're doing a, a, an initial assessment on someone. We want to know someone's lifestyle markers, which would be inflammatory markers to lipid panel, cardiovascular health, all that stuff, insulin levels. But we also want to know your hormones. We know one, we definitely want to know your testosterone, insulin, DHEA, estrogen. Uh, if you're a man, also we want to know your prostate health and those kind of things. So we want data uh, in order to decide, you know, what kind of action to take. But, you know, what we do know is that when you are stimulating your muscle, you are getting uh, an in- increase in, in the hormonal response, right? It's just like this stress, the good stress. When we apply a force to the body, we'll have a hormonal outcome. And, and initially, in, in one study that I was looking at showed that uh, both men and w- women benefited from a surge in DHA post-exercise weight training specifically, but women had a much more profound increase than men did, which I think I think is very interesting. But here's the reality is that that stimulus, once it's gone, you go back to a, a normal baseline after after that pressure uh, has, has subsided. And so you'll get a spike and then a, and a fall. And so really, like, what does that mean for body composition? What does it mean for strength? You know, because it's one thing to have a hormone surge. But then can your cells receive that hormone? And this is one of the things that we talk about so often. This is why we talk about detoxification at the cellular level and clearing cell inflammation, because those hormones have to communicate to the inside of the cell. They have to cross that plasma cell membrane through a receptor to actually activate in the mitochondria. And so just because you get a surge in a hormone or take an exogenous hormone, can you get that hormone to communicate the cell? And that's where the the rubber meets the road when it comes to hormone optimization. So same thing here. You could have unhealthy cells, get a surge of DHEA post-exercise, but can your body use that hormone? Is it actually being received by the mitochondria through the cell membrane? So these are all things that sort of differentiate the effects of doing exercise from one person to the next, right? So here, uh, another uh, here's another study that looked at an older population that actually added DHEA and they added 50 milligrams, which is a you know a medi- medial or a middle of the road sort of dose, uh, higher end of the dose range for women, but you know middle of the road definitely for men. And so in supplementing it in, they actually saw increases in testosterone, which would make sense, uh, increases in IGF one, which is is correlated with growth hormone. 
and also something called MGF, which is mechanical growth factor. And so in this particular study, they were, they were tracking uh, men and women over a six month or a full year uh, to see what that particular dose would have uh, as an effect on strength, size, and I think endurance was the other one. And so all that their study really showed is that those who were supplementing in DHEA, we saw these, or they saw these increases in the testosterone IGF-1 and also the MGF, the mechanical or mechano growth factor, which helps actually increase the size of the muscle. But they saw that where it really played a role was on that one rep max. And so not necessarily like how much you can do over like many reps, but really that one rep max. So they're able to push more weight uh, as a result of the DHA supplementation and probably as a result to these, these stimulus. And so it's important to think about this. You know, what does DHA do when it gets in your body? It's a precursor hormone. It's going to distribute into hopefully the androgens, if that's the goal, uh, but also uh, stimulate or get converted into the estrogens, which can be very beneficial for, for women. Typically postmenopause, but, but also potentially premenopause and, and perimenopause. But it is important to think about this DHEA is eventually going to convert into something. So if you add it in and then implement an exercise program, you are likely to get these increased conversions into testosterone and some of the other hormones that we want to create an impact on. So I think that was interesting to see, you know, pairing an activity, specifically strength training together with DHEA to see what kind of outcome was, was available. And, and then in general, so if you're not supplementing it in like, you know, having this as one of the cogs in the wheel of your, your health wheel, so to speak. And if you were to put exercise in, and we'll talk about in a minute, what kind of exercise, but if you're to put that into your program, you're likely to get these known stimulus of DHA post stress or post workout. And then over time, does that sort of exemplify a, 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 an ongoing sort of surge or increase or up leveling of your DHA in your blood or, or, or urine or saliva over the long term. Um, and then, and then there's a question of like, again, when is it too much? You know, when are you putting too much pressure on the body? When are you putting maybe too much exogenous hormone in and are you converting too much of that into estrogen? Right. You know, we, we have to be mindful of, of dose and application and force and timing with, with everything we do. Right. So, uh, and, but this is the, this is why we also encourage exercise variation. So a lot of the, the research on DHA correlates back to muscle strength through, through weightlifting. But if we look at, and, and that's great, I think looking through the lens of the androgenic or anabolic system. So having a, a stress stimulus, having this a release of the hormone, having this stimulus for muscle growth through testosterone, MGF and IGF-1. I think that's great. But then we also want to think about DHEA in, in this world of the adrenal system. So if we're really pushing ourselves to excess with spending way too long in the gym, as an example, or spending every workout on an exercise bike and just pushing it to like maximal effort on a, on a daily basis. So maybe like zone three or four, depending on which scale you might use for exercise tolerance. Um, if we keep pushing ourselves to such a high degree on a daily basis, um, is that, does that work for us? Are we, or what we typically see in practice is if when people have the gas pedal down for exercise and they keep doing the same thing over and over again, at really high intensity, you really start to burn yourself out. And so the, the long-term effect of that might be a lowering of DHEA, right? Heightening cortisol, but eventually, 
uh, as we discussed in the last podcast, you can get a real flattening to cortisol and DHA together. So your adrenal health can really decline as a result of too much exercise, you know, too much force applied too often, you know, and that can create issues for people. Okay. So last part of this discussion, I just want to dive into this holistic picture. Let's look at DHA in the scope of uh, clinical application or, uh, you know, a patient applying uh, a program into their life and what that means for their health. So uh, first of all, we would never just do one thing. Like, this is sort of the reality of studies. The studies are amazing because they can help to really break things down and give us some really interesting data on, on, on one or two specific things and how those things are applied to, say, in this case, one's health and what are the outcomes, you know. Was there mild benefit? Was there moderate? Was there was a maximal uh, benefit? You know, and you can get you can you know look for uh, a topic and and five and find five different studies sort of sharing slightly different results, and it can it can be totally overwhelming. And so I think this is like that. There's a beauty in that in the sense that maybe the data is not conclusive, or maybe you can cherry pick and go, well, I found some really good stuff here, so I'm just gonna just focus on you know the good. Or, or, or the opposite of that, you know, obviously that can happen too, but you know, this is the beauty of your clinical practice because you're not just doing the one thing, right? So we're going to address someone's diet. We're going to address someone's stress factors, someone's lifestyle, someone's mindset, how they're moving, how they're eating, how they're sleeping, you know, and there's many, you know, levers to pull in someone's health to help to discover that it's never just one thing. And so, the studies can elucidate some certain things for us, but but usually in practice, we're we're pulling a bunch of different levers that together there's going to be synergy, and so uh, I think that there there's huge value in in taking that information. But this is this is something we tell all our patients is that um, as as much benefit as we do get out of studies, we get maybe just as much uh, benefit of hearing patient stories of hearing what people did and you know, sort of laying out all the criteria that would have allowed for a response to be positive or, and or negative. And then we get to take all that information on a daily basis of the thousands of people that we get to work with and apply, you know, that information to each new individual that we see. And it's just, it becomes this like library of information of, of clinical relevance that I think is important for that individual because we can, you know, we can see, how things are correlate with certain individuals and how that might might resemble you know patients from our past that might show up with similar circumstances so you know we're constantly as doctors filtering all this information through that history as we all do you know, I'm, I'm just talking about how this is applied into a clinical practice and so when we're looking at things like DHEA we want to look at all these different you know uh, axes of influence that are going to contribute to someone's health and and hopefully help to build up this adrenal resilience in the body and and on this discussion if it, if it's not clear from our previous talks is that it's often more about what you take out right than it is what you put in and so asking you know i go back to the hippocratic um not the hippocratic oath well i'd go back there too first do no harm amongst other things. But uh, one of my favorite uh, Hippocrates quotes is, before you heal someone, ask if he's willing to give up the things that made him sick. And that was very gender specific back in the day. But you know, before you heal someone, ask if they are willing to give up the things that make them sick. And you know, that's a reality because if we're going to get so focused on adding things in and becoming very additive in our approach, 
we we can kind of sometimes get lost of like, oh, I stacked all these things together. Why didn't I get the outcome that I needed? Well, it's because you're not going to bed on time, man, or because you're drinking alcohol every night, or you know what? I mean, there's lingering toxins. You haven't addressed your heavy metals in your mouth. You know, get, get an infection in your gut. So why would you think that you're going to get you know an extra benefit of, of adding these things in? So. We want to be a subtractive as well as additive in our approach. And this is why what we talk about pulling different levers, right? We want to address your gut health and your brain health and your sleep rhythm and your relationships and your hormones. We want to, we want to try to dance with you in a much, as much of these different areas as possible, you know, and, and the individual sitting in front of us is going to be the gauge with, you know, as to what they're able to take on, right? We want to always be able to meet someone where they are, not, just give them a big shove and say, you need to be over there. And if you're not, I can't work with you. No, like we, we all work through things at our own pace, right? So what are the, the simplest levers to pull? What are, you know, what are as many supportive tools that we can add in to support the process? And I say to, I say to people else all the time, it's like, you know, if you're going to, if you want to add something new into your, into your lifestyle, like, what are you willing to get rid of? Like, what are you, what are you willing to sacrifice? You know, if you're going to add something in, you have to take something out. And so I use the analogy of like furniture. <laughs> I know we're guilty of this. We, we used to live in a small um, townhouse and not that our house is much bigger now, but we had to move out of the city because uh, rates for, for larger homes in Vancouver is ridiculous for a young family. So we moved to the beautiful burbs and are happy where we are. Uh, but at the time when we were living in Vancouver, we kept having to get new storage uh, units to put more of our stuff in because we had more, we had went from one kid to two kids. And so we had like more furniture scattered around our place. <laughs> so it just, it looked ridiculous that it was really hard to live in that minimalist type of life when, you know, kids come into your life. And so uh, the message really was you got to get rid of stuff before you can put new furniture in your house, you know, but we're all guilty of this. We are like, Oh, I need something to store this extra crap I have. Right. So let's get another piece of, let's get another cabinet. Let's get another, you know, dresser. You know, we keep adding things into our homes and then our homes feel cluttered. We feel overwhelmed. Right. It's affecting us on a daily basis. And we're doing that with our health. The next probiotic, oh, this probiotic's going to be amazing. This fish oil is going to be incredible. Or this new supplement for my brain is going to be amazing. We, we keep thinking about what we can add in or that new, you know, that new gym just opened up. I need to get another membership because the one at the CrossFit is not doing enough for, for me. <laughs> you know, whatever the, the issue is, we're, we're so additive in our, in our approach, which, you know, at least we're doing something. But while we're on this journey, can we subtract some stuff? And so looking through the lens of DHEA, being that, it's an adrenal hormone. It's responding to the stress. So if we can pull stresses out, then we can build a reserve, right? And without just adding things in that stimulate it and adding things in that replace it, right? And so getting subtractive as well as additive and approach, um, I think is important. So uh, I could go on and on as, as you can see. And uh, I'm grateful for you guys tuning in right to the end. Uh, I think this is an important conversation that, that obviously we're talking about DHA, but it's going to cross over to many diff different things in your life. But looking through the lens of the adrenal system is so important because the adrenals are constantly working for us. And they're either working for us because we're pushing the right buttons at the right time with the right force or they're overworking and we're really starting to see the effects of a dysregulated hormonal system and a massively depleted, you know, androgenic system or anabolic system. 
And what's the effect of that over a long period of time, right? And so with that being said, if you're enjoying this conversation and conversations like this, we would love to invite you into our Health Ignited Club. This is where we take these concepts and we bring them into our tribe and we have conversations uh, in a more intimate kind of way. We record a teaching for about 30, 30, 40 minutes, and then we turn off the record button and just engage with the community. And we go over Q&As and we go over like concerns that people might be having about what's going on in their lives. And it's it's a real intimate discussion and community board that's live. And we meet each month and it's called uh, Dr. Jensen uh, Health Club. And so we'd love to have you in that club with us. We'd love to be able to engage with you guys more intimately. So if that's uh, something that floats your boat and gets you excited, which we hope it does, uh, make sure you check out the, the offerings below. And if you haven't already, you know, continue to subscribe to the content. And as you can see, we're, we're changing things up a little bit here. Uh, Sonia will be here sometimes, sometimes she won't. But like I said, she's deep, deep into her writing and I want to honor her in that process. So you're stuck with me for a bit. Uh, please share if you're enjoying content in this kind of way. Do you like this delivery? Do you like the more engagement with uh, my wife and myself together? Uh, let us know what you think. You know, we, we're, we're here to listen and adapt uh, just like the adrenal glands. So we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Health Ignited podcast. Be sure to download, subscribe and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.